This episode of CRST the Podcast is sponsored by Nova Eye Medical. Hi, I'm Rob Noecker here, and I'm here with Amada Ref in Chicago. We're at the Interventional Glaucoma Congress uh, for 2021. And today we're going to talk a little bit about um, corneal health and the theocell health specifically and how it relates to procedures that we do to control IOP. Come on. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rob. Okay. So what we're going to talk about first is endothelial cell loss. And what's your decision making when you, when you go to lower intraocular pressure? Does this, is this something you worry about? Uh, well, yes. I think in, in recent days, uh, recent years, you know, of course, it's something that we worry about. It, um, with our conventional glaucoma filtering operations, um, it was an accepted uh, part of the procedures, an accepted risk with trabeculectomy and aqueous shunts. Uh, but these days with, uh, you know, the uh, burgeoning of so many MIGS, uh, microinvasive glaucoma surgical options that, of course, provide efficacy and also have significantly increased our safety profile, uh, we now uh, can start to um, micromanage, if you will, the safety profile of our various MIGS procedures. And um, we know that although the safety profile has been elevated to uh, a whole nother level, we know that these procedures are not, um, not entirely innocent to the corneal endothelium. We learned that with the SIPAS device, uh, which, uh, you know, after demonstrating really great efficacy, is a procedure that I did frequently, um, but after five years was shown to cause progressive corneal endothelial cell loss and mm -hmm. unfortunately was withdrawn from the market for that, uh, for that reason. And so, um, you know, since that time and over the, the past few years with all the growing options, it's something that I consider um, w anytime I make a surgical decision. Yeah. No, and, I, and for me, I, and I agree with everything you said, and for me, I think it speaks to one of the reasons we put off glaucoma surgery. The way I was trained in residency, like you put off glaucoma surgery as long as you could, because it was going to be bad in the long term. You, know, right. you had to do it, you know, and to get a short term, you know, IOP lowering this, it kind of saved the vision, but it was already going bad. You know, versus now, I often talk to patients about being proactive and doing like cataract surgery alone to, you know, cataract surgery combined with something like the eye track, uh, just to lower intraocular pressure and be proactive. Because I think with this procedure, and I think, you know, the study we're going to talk about, we did it in combination with cataract surgery. And I, my position is that the canal-based procedures work best in pseudophagic eyes. I always worry that the angle is not static. And if it's a phagic eye, you know, if it's a big old high myope, maybe it's okay. But what do you think about that? What population do you use it in? Um, well, uh, I think in terms of our canaloplasty procedures, uh, it's, it's a very versatile procedure. Mm -hmm. And so if I were to think about, you know, the, the most frequent place that I use it, it's probably that patient with mild, moderate disease who mm -hmm. is suffering from a cataract. I mean, that's, a, that's an easy decision for me yep. because I am not incrementally increasing the risk that the patient has already accepted from cataract surgery alone. And your study helped to solidify that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, I can use a standalone procedure in patients who are pseudophagic or even phagic sometimes if we need that. Mm -hmm. um, and it can use it in patients who are suffering from secondary open angle glaucomas, not mm -hmm. just primary open angle glaucomas, but all of the uh, difficult and challenging types of glaucomas that I'm sure you see in your practice mm -hmm. that are related to maybe retinal disease, retinal therapies, or even to corneal disease. I've done this procedure in patients that have had corneal transplants. Mm -hmm. No, and I think you're right. And like I said, in some ways, this is not like a new concept at all. When you look back at trabeculectomy or, you know, tube shunts, it was kind of accepted. I mean, it's widely proven 
that big tube set shunts in the anterior chamber sooner or later do in the cornea endothelium. So, um, and I think the question now is with all these minimal, micro or minimally invasive techniques, are there micro or minimally invasive enough, you know, to really, you know, change the curve or what's going to happen kind of and not guarantee inevitable endothelial cell loss? Right. I think that's absolutely right. I think um, we've enhanced the safety overall, there's no question. Uh, but we want to maximize that uh, the degree of safety that we're affording our patients. Mm -hmm. So I know that uh, yourself and Dr. David Lubeck performed a very well-conducted uh, prospective study looking at endothelial cell loss uh, associated with uh, one of our MIGS procedures. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure, and I, I think it's you know it's an ongoing study. It's uh, we've pooled our data from a prospective trial looking at combining you know cataract surgery with ab internal canaloplasty. Um, so and once again, it's the primarily we know this is a good procedure for lowering intraocular pressure. It works as well or better than pretty much anything else we do. But the question is, how relatively traumatic is it to the cornea endothelium? And what we found was, actually, I was a little bit surprised, a remarkably slow, low endothelial cell loss, uh, around 3% 3, 3 or so. You know, not really much, much different than what we expect with modern cataract surgery alone. Um, you know, certainly when you look at the data from older procedures, there's a much higher rate. So I think that's encouraging because, you know, it's, there's, there's a number of steps in that procedure and it's a very thorough procedure. Um, but I think my explanation of may that way be is, is a lot of it is out of the anterior chamber. We're working, we're targeting the canal, which is the problem organ in glaucoma, and we're not doing a lot of kind of excessive manipulation in, in there. We're not leaving anything behind either. So Rob, 3% and that was uh, eye tract canalplasty combined with cataract surgery? That's correct. And how far out from the surgery was that 3%? So our data, the latest data we have is 12 months out. So once again, it's ongoing and we continue to report updated results at some of the future meetings here in 2022. Um, but yeah, so 12 months out. And that's a good break point, I think. You know, six months, I always say with glaucoma surgery, the first six months, everything looks pretty much great, right? I mean, we're always happy at six months. Yeah. It's, I think the truth comes down later on down the line at one year, two years. And we saw that with the SIPAS data that it was, it was, you know, it wasn't the first year when it be, the break started to happen. It took, it did take some time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's remarkable that uh, yourself and Dr. Lubeck were able to get uh, just a 3% reduction in endothelial cell loss for a procedure that was combined with cataract surgery. You know, historically, if you look at cataract surgery uh, alone, you're probably looking at about a 10% loss. Mm -hmm. uh, so 3% uh, for, for you guys, I think that's fantastic. Well, Dr. Dulovex is a great cataract surgeon as well, so that's never <laughs> No, you are as well. Very humble, Rob. The, no, I'm, uh, the two of you, I think, <laughs> are, uh, you know, speaks to your surgical skills in general, but also I think speaks to the gentle uh, nature of the eye track procedure. And, uh, you know, it's a procedure that's performed, as you said, away from the cornea endothelium under the protection of viscoelastic. Mm -hmm. So uh, very little incremental effect, if any, uh, to cataract surgery alone. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you, uh, so why do you think, why do you think in terms of the mechanisms of action, in terms of what we're doing, you know, when we choose MIGS and we all, that's kind of the way the thing is now, we have a lot of options, as you said earlier. How does like the way we lower intraocular pressure matter or how much we do it or? 
What do you think? Right. I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, as, as the number of options have grown, as, as I have my choices of procedures to be performing on my patients, I think very critically about each of these procedures and the safety margin of each of those procedures, particularly the safety margin as related to the cornea endothelium. So when I think about, uh, you know, how corneal endothelial cell compromise occurs postoperatively in our patients, we think about it as occurring via three mechanisms, typically. Uh, one is a mechanical mechanism. We know that from studies that look at our tube shunts. The closer that uh, the tube is to the corneal endothelium, not surprisingly, uh, the higher the risk is to damage uh, the corneal physiology, corneal endothelial cell physiology. The second mechanism would be uh, inflammation, intraocular inflammation and changing the composition of the aqueous to be pro-inflammatory in nature. Uh, inflammatory cytokines we know have negative effects on those intercellular endothelial cell junctions, cause the corneal endothelium to become more leaky in nature. Uh, and then those aqueous cytokines also decrease um, sodium potassium pump density. So the corneal endothelium doesn't function as well at pumping fluid out uh, from the corneal stroma. And then third would be uh, this idea of segmental aqueous flow. You know, physiologically, aqueous flows across 360 degrees of the, of the cornea in a three-dimensional manner, bathes the cornea endothelium in a diffuse manner rather than being segmentally directed anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's good evidence uh, that segmental direction of aqueous can cause uh, mechanical damage to the cornea endothelium and corneal compromise in, in that way. In terms of you know the various MIGS procedures that we have, you know I personally am looking for something that, as closely as possible, mimics natural physiologic outflow, ideally without um, the need for a device or anything mm -hmm. artificial that uh, can potentially cause any of those three mechanisms mm -hmm. and uh, subsequent uh, corneal endothelial cell health decline. No, I think those are good points, and I think I, I would just add that um, you, you brought up the idea of a devices, and once again, I had great success with the side pass, and I was like very sad that it was removed from our armamentarium, but it just shows you that you, it makes you question a little bit, is, is any device totally safe to leave in there? Just because the, the eye is dynamic, you know, and I often put it like, you, I have patients like rub their eye, and you know, any, anything can touch the corneal endothelium if you push on your eye, which is actually fairly easy to indent it. So that's always a long-term concern. And I've had patients like tell me they don't want a device in their eye. And sometimes we like, we get into this little back and forth a little bit, um, but at one level I understand it and it, it makes sense. So, and I agree, I think because, you know, when we use the eye, the eye track, um, you know, in glaucoma, the, the problem thing with IOP control is the trabecular mesh works like canal of Schlem. So when we're, I think when we're addressing that, number one, because it's a closed system too, I think the eye pressure drifts down and I think it's a more physiologic change in pressure versus like, you know, hitting the floor. And I think that does, you know, cause problems for the corneal endothelium, going back to the corneal, the safety side of things. But mechanistic, mechanistically, it makes a lot of sense. I agree with you. It's kind of the disease system. And I argue for early in intervention. And I really think sometimes it's, it's almost re rejuvenative, if that's a word, mm -hmm. re rejuvenates the canal schlem and enhances the flow. And I think that's good for the cornea endothelium. I think it's good for the trabecular mesh work, all parts of the system. Do you agree? Yes, I think uh, it's, 
especially with the MIGS procedures that we have now, we're intervening earlier, right? And I think, um, you know, I've been in practice long enough now that I follow my patients over, you know, years and I can see, you know, the effects that aging has on the cornea, just aging in and of itself, aging in a glaucoma patient, that's additional risk to the cornea endothelium. And then many patients, you know, may require more than one procedure. Um, over their lifetimes. That's, that's likely for you know, our glaucoma patients. So we're intervening earlier uh, in, a, in a healthier state, uh, which is great with safer procedures. But at the same time, we have to be careful with our selection because these patients have a lifetime now mm -hmm. of um, potential other uh, issues that may occur or other interventions that may be performed that have incremental effects on the, on the cornea. So I think that that first Procedure selection uh, should really be the one with the, of, of course, efficacious and also the one with the highest safety margin. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think, you know, I track canaloplasty for me. Uh, you know, I, the study results that you and, and Dr. Lubeck nicely uh, presented, I think, uh, are very in line with what we see in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Patients that have combined cataract surgery and I track canaloplasty, you cannot differentiate those patients postoperatively from patients that had cataract surgery alone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very gentle procedure and uh, you know, are treated postoperatively virtually identically to patients who have had cataract surgery alone, with the exception being that we can now ease up on the patient's uh, glaucoma medication burden. No, I think that's, I just follow up on a couple points you made. You know, number one, you know, that none of these procedures are forever. And I tell my patients everything in glaucoma is temporary. And I hope temporary means like 20 years, but yeah. you know. Um, but, and that, that, I think that speaks to this procedure though, because this particular study that we did was in combination with cataract surgery, which I think is these days kind of the first incisional glaucoma intervention. But this is a repeatable procedure. And I always like this because it doesn't, um, change any future options. I always like to keep as many options for future interventions as open as possible. We don't destroy any tissue. I've gone back in a number of these patients, actually in this, some of these study patients, um, for a second procedure and we can get a repeat kind of effect. So I think that speaks to, once you, like you said, the gentleness of it, but also kind of getting to the mechanism of why they need it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That's something that I teach our residents and fellows, you know, think two, three steps ahead. It's, it's kind of like strategy. It's like chess, mm -hmm. you know, think ahead of yourself and, and don't take any options off the table uh, when making your, your decision in present day. Yeah. And then just like part two, to get back to what you said about inflammation, I agree. Traditional glaucoma surgery, you know, you have it in clinic. You, Tradition, you can tell who had the traditional glaucoma surgeon who had like regular cataract Absolutely. surgery. You know, yeah. you don't want to mix those populations too right. tightly. You know, your premium IOL patients and your, you know, valve patients. Right. And, you know, it's not not good. But I think you know, once again, what speaks to this is we tend not to get shallowing. And and in the past, like we used to be like, oh, the anterior chamber is a little shallow, just wait it out. That's okay. Actually, you know, based on my more recent experience with MIGS. I don't think that's okay. And if you look, a lot of these patients have PAS after a trabeculectomy or an expression, you know, some aggressive IOP lowering. And I think that PAS speaks to the inflammation that's really associated there. And it speaks to the mechanism of failure in some of these patients where you really don't see the big drop in pressure. The anterior, like you said, the anterior chamber looks great from day one. And then, you know, it's just, you know, getting them to heal up a little bit. So I think, I think you're right. And inflammation is, is really problematic both for the corneal endothelium and just treat you know, the glaucoma in the long term. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's no question anterior chamber shallowing, peripheral anterior sneakier, th these are not natural events. 
And, uh, and in fact, in, you know, going back to the literature, looking at studies that have examined um, factors that increase risk for cornea endothelial cell loss after you know, traditional glaucoma filtering operations, one of those studies found that the only independent factor that led to increased risk to corneal endothelial cell compromise was the presence of peripheral anterior sneakae mm -hmm. in a dose-dependent manner. So the greater the degree of peripheral anterior sneakae, the higher that risk. Um, and that's something to think about. You know, I see peripheral anterior sneakae in any of my patients after any procedure, that puts me on alert mm -hmm. and makes me think, um, you know, and that's going to modify, uh, you know, what I do for that patient and it's going to modify their risk in a, in a negative way, unfortunately, uh, in terms of future uh, corneal decline. Yeah. No, I, I agree, and I think you've brought up all the like the major kind of I guess speaking points or the things to think about when we talk about you know doing eye track uh, canaloplasty and you know both in conjunction with cataract surgery, but also as a standalone procedure. I think, like I said, it it gets to the mechanism of action, it avoids excessive inflammation, um, and that's good. You know, you see it; it's good for the patients. The patients know it; you know it. You can tell that clinically, but it's also nice to see data to substantiate kind of what we know already clinically. Do you have any f closing comments? Uh, no, you know, I, th I think that I've been very pleased with my results with iTrack canaloplasty. As you said, it doesn't take anything off the table. Uh, it rejuvenates the eye's physiologic outflow system. It's beautiful when you see that intraoperatively, that, mm -hmm. that nice episcleral blanching. It's very satisfying. You can see the effects that you're having mm -hmm. intraoperatively. And, um, you know, I, th I think that uh, in terms of future corneal health, it's probably the lowest risk option that we have in terms of our uh, MIGS interventions. So thank you. So thanks again. Thanks, Ahmad. This is Rob Noecker. Uh, we're going to go now to the Interventional Glaucoma Congress here in Chicago.